Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, we want to get into the Word this morning. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We are in the middle of a series. Well, I don't know middle. I don't know how long. this is. We might be on the way front end. We might be still doing this when it goes over to 230. 2030. Uh, but we're, we're in this series on foundations. And our, found, our, our text that we're using is Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, the author says, let us uh, leave the foundational teachings, the elementary teachings, and not lay again a foundation. Now you just pause there. You say, well, well, pastor, then why are we doing this? Because we need to make sure that the foundation has been laid. We don't want to keep having to lay it, but we want to make sure it is laid because we want a firm foundation. Jesus made this promise. Those who build their house on this teaching will have their house built upon the rock. And when the storms of adversity come, that house will stand. So we want to assure that we have a firm foundation, individually and corporately. And so we're looking at this. and we're, So in Hebrews 6, he gives six planks or three pairs of planks to this foundation. There's repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God. There is instructions in baptisms and the laying on of hands. And then there's the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And there are, those are three pairs. Repentance and faith go together. Instructions in baptisms and the laying on of hands go together. Now I want you to think about this. This is foundational. How many of you think about laying on of hands as some foundational teaching in the New Testament? Not many of us. But from a biblical perspective, the laying on of hands is a foundational doctrine. Well, what does that mean? How does that apply to us? What's the, what's the purpose of the laying on of hands? I, I'm going to tell you, it's more than merely praying for the sick. That is, that is included. But there is, this is a foundational doctrine. We're going to look at that. And it really does have to do with the uh, instructions in baptisms, okay? And we're going we're gonna to look at that in the days to come. And then we will get into the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment is the, the final pair that we're going to look at. And those two go together. But right now we're looking at instructions in baptisms that Paul addresses. He, uh, some translations will translate that uh, in washings. And there's a reason. Some will tie it in with the Old Testament washings uh, you know, ceremonial washings, and I believe that, that there is an application there, but the literal word is baptisms. And I believe that, that there's a, there, the, uh, because it's a foundational doctrine, the author is trying to stress to us the necessity of understanding the purpose of baptisms. Now, this is interesting because in Hebrews 6, it, it explicitly says instructions in baptisms, plural. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes this statement. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So what gives? If Paul says there's one baptism, some people say Paul wrote Hebrews. They're wrong. Uh, You'll see when we get to heaven. But uh, I, I personally don't think he wrote it. I think maybe Apollos did. It's written in a different way. And even some of the perspectives on theology are a little different. Not that they're contradictory, but they look at it from different angles. And the, the writer of Hebrews has a revelation 
of Judaism and of, of the Jewish religion that Paul doesn't seem to carry to that extent. So when Paul looks at one baptism, what Paul does is he joins these baptisms together. Now, the fact is you could make an argument for five separate baptisms as outlined in the New Testament. There is the baptism of John, which is a, clearly a baptism of repentance. Then there is Christian baptism. We see this in Romans chapter 6. Paul begins to unpack this. And whereas with John, we're baptized in water into repentance. In Christian baptism, according to Romans 6, we're baptized in water into Christ's death. Something different. And it's not that that, there, that we leave John's baptism, it's that we build upon it. It's incorporated. John was preparing the way for the Lord. And so we add to this baptism this, this element of we're baptized into the death of Christ. There's also the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. And then, you see, so you could say baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of fire, depending on how you look at that. We're going to get into that. Not this week but it's coming. And then there is also a, a symbolic but very real baptism of suffering. Jesus told his disciples, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized in the baptism I'm baptized with? He was talking about a baptism of suffering. So what we're going to be looking at today is really the, from the Pauline's perspective, how there's one baptism, water baptism and spirit baptism are joined as two sides to one coin. And so it's that one baptism. Did we pray yet? Okay, let's do that. I, I apologize. I, we, we were in a service earlier, and I'm you know, trying to figure out if that was from this morning or right now. So, Father, we just pray right now, God, that you would instruct us. And Lord, I ask God that over this whole series, Father, that you would lay a foundation in our hearts. Not merely information, but let it be transformation. Let it show up in our everyday life. And Father, I ask that you would give us great light and understanding so that some of these things that have been empty traditions would take on fresh life. And we would be able to enter into the good of those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let, let me throw out a couple verses to you. Uh, second, or 1 Corinthians, rather. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, listen to this. this. This is interesting. For I do not want you to be ignorant. This is verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul says that the Israelite people, the old covenant people of God, went through a baptism. But it was a dual baptism. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And so, but not only that, they were baptized into Moses. Because every covenant has its covenant representative. And so in the Old Covenant, the covenant representative, the, the, the uh, federal head of that covenant was Moses. So much so that sometimes you read in passages, it'll say, and Moses said, and Moses said, and it's speaking of the law of God. 
because it's being attributed to Moses, even though he got it from God, they're recognizing Moses as the federal head of that covenant. So they're baptized into Moses in two ways, in the cloud and in the sea. In the new covenant, we are baptized into the federal head of our covenant, Jesus, the living Son of God. We're baptized into Christ, in water, and in the Spirit. So if you, you look at this in the Old Covenant, when they went through the Red Sea, that signified their water baptism. They left the old, the wandering, the, the, you know, Egypt and the, not wandering, but they, they went into that, but the, the Egypt, the slavery of Egypt behind, and they came through the waters, and then they were led by a cloud by day and fire by night. And it represented the leading of the Spirit in their life, that is to come to us, through the baptism in the Spirit. So we are baptized in water and the sea and the cloud of the Spirit. And it's not, a, it's not a coincidence that that cloud would show up as fire by night. And it's that baptism of the Spirit and of fire. It, it's fascinating to me. You look at the symbolism that's only the brilliant mind of God could have woven all of this together. In the Old Covenant, there was the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. Then they were delivered from Egypt as they painted the blood on the doorpost. I know, I'm, I know some of you are already seeing Charlton Heston in your mind. They're painted on the wall, and then they're delivered from Egypt, from slavery. All through the Old Testament, scholars have always preached on how Egypt is symbolized, symbolizes the world. Slavery symbolizes our sin. And we're delivered through the blood, the new covenant lamb, Jesus Christ. And then 50 days later, they went to Mount Sinai. And if you remember, Charlton has, I mean, Moses uh, received the tablets of stone. And it's so vivid. Uh, Charlton, hey, you got to admit, that was a good movie, okay? And that flaming finger, Moses, and it's carving all that, and Moses is, and he's so dramatic, he's always kind of walking flexed, you know, and uh, it was a little overdone, but you know, they, uh, at least they kept the drama to it. And so they receive the law that was to show them how to live. In the new covenant, we have the Passover, Jesus Christ is sacrificed for us. We're delivered from the bondage of slavery in sin. And 50 days later, it is Pentecost. Pentecost was the feast of harvests where there's also this, we, we don't have time to get into this, but there's this empowerment for the harvest. You shall be witnesses for me when the Spirit comes upon you. But the other element of this Pentecostalism is that he comes upon us, and from then on, we're not led by the law, we're led by the Spirit. He writes it on our heart. And so now, rather than Moses hiding his face, it's, we stand there, God writes it on our heart, and he, we're led by the Spirit, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night. And Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. We learn to follow after him. It's a beautiful symbolism. But in this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul ties these two things together. He said in the old covenant, they were baptized in the sea and in the cloud. and the new covenant, were baptized in water and in the spirit. 
We see this in our great example, King Jesus himself. When he goes down in the water, he, he, he leaves his self-life behind, not his sin, he had no sin, but he did have the will, he had the ability to live his own life had he wanted to. But Jesus yielded to the Father, submitted himself to the baptismal waters and came up and what happened? The Spirit came upon him and he was led by the Spirit. It, it never talks about Jesus being led by the Spirit until he went in the water. And so the, the biblical formula is we go down in the water and we come up and the Spirit comes upon us. And in that sense, it is Paul's one baptism. And if we don't realize this, we can just go through these, these little ceremonies and we don't realize the significance. There is so much more to this baptism than we realize. So let's look at Luke chapter 3. Listen to what it says. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Then verse 18, or yeah, 18, I was going to say 13. Uh, these are new glasses, but uh. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So in saying that, Luke is stressing that this is part of the gospel. We know that the gospel, the proclamation of the good news, is the entry point into the kingdom. It's the door frame or the threshold you need to step over and embrace the gospel. And just like in Hebrews, it says instructions in baptisms is a foundational principle. Luke says the same thing. That in coming into the kingdom, when, when Luke was preaching about, or not Luke, but John was preaching about these things, this was included in the gospel. It says, with other words, he proclaimed the good news. Literally, that word is gospel. That's why early Pentecostals referred to themselves as full gospel. Anybody remember those days? We've got, you know, my, dad, uh, my dad pastored a little church. It was simply called the Full Gospel Church. And some people react to that. Well, what are you saying? I'm preaching a half gospel? I, I'm just telling you what the Word says, that this is a foundational truth that is connected to the entry point. It's foundational. And the baptism in the Spirit, as well as baptism in water, is one of the first works. And if you have not been baptized in water, or you have not been baptized in the Spirit, I want to invite you to do so, because these are the first works. And you want to make sure you have the foundation firmly laid. Now, I, I guarantee there are people in this room that have been walking with Jesus for quite some time, but have yet to be baptized in water. Because in their mind, they're thinking, really? We're still doing that? We're getting up in public and getting in the water? coming up soaked, ruining our hairdos in public as some religious rite? And I'm telling you, yes, we're still doing that. And we need to understand why, 
But I'll tell you the first reason why is because God said so. And he's smarter than us. <laughs> there is a reason that God has us going into the water. Because of the rich prophetic picture that that gives to us of what God is doing in the baptismal waters. And so John, in preaching about what he does and what Jesus does, he both joins these things together, he compares them or he connects them, and he contrasts them. He says, listen guys, what I do with water, the one coming after me is going to do with the Spirit. And it's a vivid prophetic picture for you and I. Now, he's literally enacting a parable. The word parable, literally, in the Greek that we translate parable, it means to throw alongside. And the concept is this. The, God's ways are higher than our ways. God, the kingdom of God is beyond our comprehension initially. So God wants to invite us in to give us light and understand. He wants to teach us his ways. The way he does that is he said, hey, I'm going to throw alongside something you do understand. So it will give you insight into something you don't understand. The kingdom of heaven, you don't understand it. Well, it's like a farmer who went out to sow some seed. Study farming, you'll get some insight into the kingdom. And John is doing the same thing. He says, listen, what I do with water, the one coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes. He is going to do what I do with water with the Holy Ghost and fire. You will go down, you will be submerged, you will come up dripping and saturated with the Holy Spirit and fire. It is a vivid picture of what Jesus is going to do. So he says, listen, I'm doing the water, Jesus is going to do the Spirit. They're connected, but they're also contrasted because of what's going to happen. And so we'll get into this in some later days about this baptismal formula all through Scripture. Because there are people who believe that you are baptized in the Spirit at the moment of conversion. And I understand scripturally why they believe that. And there's one key passage that brings them to that conclusion. The problem is it's being misinterpreted. And I'm going to show you from the Word of God where, how that is to be interpreted. Because the baptism in the Holy Spirit is separate from and subsequent to your salvation. There are many people who are born again, heaven as their destination. The Spirit of God resides in them, but He's yet to come upon them. They have not been baptized in the Spirit. And one of the reasons that, it, that happens is that people have been taught that when you get saved, you're baptized in the Spirit at the moment of your conversion. But it's very clear from the book of Acts, as well as this problem passage. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you know Turner. This, uh, we'll look at this in the days to come. But I'm going to show you how those are two separate things. There are people in the New Testament that were saved, baptized in water, but the Spirit had not yet come upon them. Now, there are people who say, well, no, you shouldn't get your doctrine from the narrative passages. Only get your doctrine from the epistles. Okay, I'll take that. Then I'm going to take my doctrine from the epistle that says all Scripture, including the narrative passages, are inspired by God and profitable for doctrine. Which brings me right back to the narrative passages. Okay, I'm being a smart aleck, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, so he says he's going to baptize us in the Spirit and with fire. And I would propose to you that water baptism and spirit baptism are the one baptism that Paul is speaking of. Water baptism 
Let me read this to you. Water baptism is not just something we do out of mindless obedience to simply go through the motions. It is the expression of a zealous desire to lay, to lay to rest our former way of life. Scripture is very clear. Water baptism is a burial. And it's us having a revelation of our life apart from Christ. And when we see it for what it is, there's something that rises up within us that agrees with heaven and says, I deserve judgment. And I want to lay to death that old man. I've, I, in Christ, I've been crucified with him, but I want to have a funeral. I want to lay this man to rest. Some of you will remember Miss Sandra. Sandra Collier, her, her and Quimby Collier were on staff with us for a number of years. Uh, I worked for Quimby early on in ministry, and he worked for me at the end. And he would often tell me, I'm so glad I was nice to you because I'm... Now, now he, I, you know, he was working for me, but Quimby and Sandra were a wonderful couple, and uh, they, were, they were a breath of fresh air into my life. I, I understood repentance, but I didn't understand faith. I understood I wanted to leave my old life, but I had no concept of the new life God invited me into. I knew I'd been translated from darkness, but I didn't understand I'd been translated into the king of his or the kingdom of his dear son. And then this happy charismatic couple came bouncing into my life, prophesying over people. People get healed and delivered everywhere they were. I've seen Sandra just hug people and watch them go through deliverance. She'd walk up to people and oh my what is this? And she would, t I, I just saw a picture of you when you were 14. You were wearing this. And they would start weeping. And she would, she just a, a, an amazing woman of God. And so I began to try to learn everything I could from this couple. And one of the th interesting things that Sandra shared with me one time, she said early on in her walk with God, as she was praying one day, she would, she would set aside the morning just to worship. And the Lord showed her a vision of herself, and she was carrying a dead body. She was carrying this corpse of her old person, her pre-Christ person. And the Lord said, arise and be baptized and bury that old man. She was walking around trying to carry the old man. And she needed to have this understanding and this experience, I'm going to lay that person to rest. And I can point to the day of my funeral. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And there was this laying to rest. And so in water baptism, we go down into the water and we leave that old person behind. But when we come up out of the waters, the Spirit of God coming on us is imparting to us the resurrection power to walk this thing out. And there is power that comes through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the other side of this baptism. And it's not sufficient just to have to, to lay that old man in the grave to come up with nothing to replace it. God has not left us to ourselves. He wants to come on us in power to be led by the cloud by day and the fire by night. He wants us to keep in step with the Spirit. And the Pentecostal baptism that we talk about most Pentecostals talk about the power to be a witness, and that's valid. That's one expression of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the outward expression. But there is very clearly an inward expression that puts to death the misdeeds of the flesh, is how Paul puts it. So we're empowered to live in a holy life, 
and empowered to impart it to others. But it's the resurrection power that comes upon us. And the tragedy is, is that a lot of believers have been baptized in water, but they've never been baptized in the Spirit because they've never been taught to ask for it. But Jesus himself said to his disciples, they'd spent three years in the best ministry school this side of heaven. Jesus was their instructor. It's a pretty good teacher. And after three years of their discipleship under Jesus' tutelage, he said, guys, this is a paraphrase, guys, don't even think about ministry. You ain't ready until you've been endued with power from on high. And that is the second expression of this one baptism that Paul is talking about. So just like Jesus were to go down in the water and come up in the Spirit. So, water baptism is not just something we do out of mindless obedience, simply to go through the motions. It is an expression of a zealous desire to lay, lay to rest our former way of life. It is, the res, it is a response to God. It is an act of repentance, a public renunciation of former allegiances. It is to echo Jesus' cry on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we embrace the death and burial of baptism, fully trusting him with our future, whatever that may hold. That is the idea of baptism. That it's his now. We are dead to the right to rule our own life. From now on, I told one of my kids this morning, I was encouraging one of my children, and I said, okay, this is what you need to pray about, and understand, you are not your own, you were bought with the price. And you need to ask your master, what would you have me do about this area of my life? Because you don't get to call the shots, he does. I would have, when he was littler, I would have said, you ask your dad, but... He's an adult. So I said, hey, you ask your master. That's the idea behind baptism, that we come up. <laughs> I'm waiting for orders, sir. And then the power of the Spirit comes upon us. This is followed by his commitment to fill us, to inhabit and empower us for a new life. But this baptism of the Spirit also includes a baptism of fire, which is a purging of the old. And we'll get into that in the future. So... Our repentance is what we do towards God, and we yield to the waters of baptism. And when we come up, then God responds to our commitment, and he baptizes us in the Spirit. It's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus himself is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He's the one that immerses us submerges us, soaks us, so that we come up dripping with the Spirit of the living God. That's an act of Christ. Now, I mentioned that there's also this renunciation in baptism. And it's something that we do not preach enough. And we're going to from now on around here. The early church understood that there was not just a repentance towards God, but there was a renunciation towards the devil. This is still taught in Catholic catechism, as, from what I understand. It may be taught in Lutheran catechism. But the early church had this formal statement. You can find it in some of the writings of the early church fathers, where they would say, as, as you are being baptized, you are to state, I renounce Satan. And all of his pomp, that's an interesting phrase, and all of his pomp, I break my allegiance, essentially. 
that I no longer belong to him. You see, what happens is, is we open doors in our previous way of life. We open doors and we build pathways to our mind and our heart, and we grant legal access to the enemy. And so we need to renounce those things. It's not just that we repent towards God and say, God, I'm sorry, and I turn from those things, but I also need to unchoose the choices I made towards the enemy. I need to set him on notice. I need to make a declaration to all all spiritual powers in the spiritual realm. I belong to Jesus, and I break these alliances. These doors I once opened, I close. I once chose, I took a welcome mat and put it up front the door of my heart and said, these spirits are welcome in my life, but now I unchoose, I renounce. I'm taking that welcome mat up and I'm saying, I, I've repented before God and now I'm breaking with the enemy. You see, there's repentance, there's renunciation, and there's restoration. We repent towards God, renounce towards the enemy, and then he restoreth my soul. What does that mean? He gives the patches of ground that I once gave the enemy access to. He tells me, now you have to steward this for me. I become an outpost of the kingdom, every patch of my soul, and I kick the enemy out. I inform him, you are no longer welcome here. And we need to understand this because too many believers have left doors open in their life and then there's, there's times where all of a sudden they get into the evil day. You remember Paul says in Ephesians 6, in the evil day. You know some days are more evil than others. Am I the only one? I mean, I could be sailing along and all of a sudden it's just like all hell breaks loose in my life. And if I haven't closed doors, I actually give the enemy access to my soul. And so I need to break up those, those, those pathways and I need to renounce the enemy. I need to strip him of his power. I need to set him on notice. I once chose, now I unchoose. I belong to Jesus. And that is part of baptism. That's why this summer, many of you saw, when people were getting baptized, they'd go in the water and they'd come out and they started to go through deliverance. Why? Because baptism is a severing of those old allegiances. The person that once had the alliances with the enemy is now dead and buried, and we come up in newness of life. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so deliverance should be taken care of at the beginning. And it's a tragedy that there are still believers that end up going through deliverance years into their walk with God. Now, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just saying, let's do this thing God's way. Let's start taking care of this stuff on the front end. Now, some of you, you're like, you really believe that Christians could need deliverance? I've seen too much, okay? You can open the door. Paul says for a reason, don't give the devil a foothold or ground. There's a reason he says that to believers. Because you can grant the enemy access. You say, well, do you believe a, demon, a Christian can be demon-possessed? Well, here's my problem with that. That is an unscriptural title. It's a poor translation of Greek into English. The Bible never, the, the literal Greek never talks about demon-possessed. It talks about someone being demonized or influenced by a demon. And we can, we can be influenced 
We can, some people say, well, I, I know that, but it's not possessed, it's compressed or oppressed or suppressed or impressed or, hey, all of that is just human way of trying to deal with an unfortunate translation. Are you being harassed and influenced by an enemy that you've given ground to? Well, let's close that door. That's what we're talking about. And that is supposed to happen at baptism. So let me, let me go on here. So in water baptism, we recognize and readily agree with God's assessment of our previous life and embrace the fact that we deserve judgment, laying it to death under the watery grave. In spirit baptism, we experience the resurrection power. God fills us with the ability to walk in newness of life. But he also goes to work dealing with the underlying attitudes, the mindsets and wounds of our old life still resident within our souls. It is crucial we respond to these dealings lest we fall back into our old patterns. What he reveals and we respond to in water baptism, that revelation of, man, I figured out the problem and it's me. I'm going to bury that thing. God, what we, he reveals and we respond to in water baptism, he begins to work out in the baptism of the Spirit and in fire. This excavation process is a process. It's not an event. God begins to deal with those underlying issues in our soul. And that's where we have this concept of the baptism of fire. When Luke quotes John's message, John says, his winnowing, speaking of Jesus, he said, what I do with water, the one coming after me, he's going to do with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is already in his hand. It's like the Lord is zealously eager to get a hold of you and to begin to separate that which is usable from that which is not. And he's going to burn it up with unquenchable fire. This is vivid language. When we talk about a baptism of fire, it's talking first about the purification before it's talking about empowerment. We love the, you know, the fire of God. I want the fire of God to fall. I want, and I do. But the fire of God must first come through you and purify you before it can be used by you. There's a reason when it says that Jesus came out of the baptismal waters. The Spirit came upon him, and it says he was then led of the Spirit, or some translations even say driven of the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tested of the enemy. But it says very explicitly he went into the wilderness full of the Spirit. And 40 days, God was dealing with Jesus' heart. The sinless Son of God needed the dealings of God in the wilderness, and he had to go through temptation because it was only in that that his character was solidified. You and I have an added element to this thing. There is chaff in them thar souls. God is going after some things in our heart. And it says that Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out 40 days later in the power of the Spirit. There are a lot of believers who have been filled but don't walk in power. And it's because between their receiving of the Spirit and the dealings of God, they lose in the wilderness what they gained in the river. 
the enemy attacked Jesus' identity. And he said, did God really say, if you're the son of God, and he was trying to push Jesus to prove what was already a reality in his life. He was telling him, manufacture a miracle to validate your identity, Jesus. You've got something to prove. He was trying to get him off the ground of his secure identity into this manufacturing something to prove externally what was already a reality internally. And so we need to understand whenever the Spirit comes upon us, there is a fresh dealing on the back end. What you lay to rest in the water, God goes to purify in the Spirit. And there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit that has fire involved. And that fire in this concept, in this passage, it is unquenchable fire to burn up the chaff. And God wants to purify us. And this is foundational. God wants to do that at the front end. Whenever there's a fresh harvest, there's a fresh fire. Because God has to burn up that which is unusable from that fresh harvest. Yesterday I was spending some time with the Lord, just praying, preparing for the service last night. And uh, I was surprised. The, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. We met in a barn. It was cool. Uh, it was kind of small for the size of the crowd, but it was cool. And uh, the Lord told me before I went over there, he said, it's not a coincidence you're meeting in a barn. Because those that gather tonight will be the first fruits of the coming harvest. And the first fruits belong to the Lord. God was harvesting. There was a hundred young adults and one baby. The first fruits of a coming harvest. And there was an uncommon consecration God wanted to impart. We are on the front end of a harvest. As I was on my face yesterday praying, my phone beep, beeped up and I looked over and it was a prophet I know out of Colorado. And he sent me a voice text. He said, man, God, just, God gave me a word. He had a dream about me and three other pastors. And so he sent me a voice text, 28 minute long voice text. And I listened to all 28 minutes and it rocked me. And one of the things he was prophesying was over the passage I was studying while I was laying on my face. And it was about fathers and mothers being raised up for the coming harvest. And he said this, he said, I don't know if there's been new people coming to Heartland or not. He said, but they're about to. He said, if it's already happened, it's going to continue to happen all through 2024. But God's going to send people. He said, he's going to send those that nobody else wants. And begin to make a list of different types of people that have been ostracized and sidelined. He said, God's going to send them to Heartland because they're going to find love there and acceptance. So we want to make sure the coming harvest, with every fresh harvest, comes fresh fire. Because the fire has to remove that which is not usable from the harvest. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I ask you to put your hands out before the Lord. I have a similar sense this morning that I had yesterday with the young adults. The Lord told me yesterday for the service last night that he wanted to release 
an uncommon consecration. Grace from God to yield to him in an uncommon way. Grace to surrender at a deeper level. That he wants to grace us both to will and to do of his good purpose. Not just call us and empower us to do the right thing, but to grace us with the want to. That there's this deep eruption within us. Jesus, we want to please you. And then he wants to give us the ability to follow through, the strength to follow that thing through. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. And Lord, we stand before you this morning as the first fruits of the coming harvest. And Lord, we know that the first fruits, the tithe, belongs to the Lord. So Lord, you're calling us to an uncommon consecration. And Lord, as we stand on the precipice of the 21-day fast, which starts tomorrow, I ask, Lord, that you would baptize us in the Holy Ghost and fire. Lord, that you would begin to purify us. And Lord, help us to lay hold of your goodness, to understand that your dealings are a sign of your goodness towards us. Not your rejection, but your acceptance. And that you're going to extract that which is not usable. Lord, I ask that you would release your fire. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I want to encourage you. In this, starting tomorrow, we enter into our 21-day fast. We'll break it three weeks from tonight. That's after our business meeting. It means that we'll have a short business meeting. I want to encourage you. Enter in. Do something to stretch yourself. Don't just do something easy. And I'm not saying do something hard for hardness sake. I'm saying let's lay before the Lord and say, God, I want you to deal with me. Lord, I'm asking you, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me so that we can come out the other side like Jesus and walk in the power of the Spirit. Amen? God bless you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.